All right, everybody, come on in, please. Have a seat. Uh, Andrew, give us a mission update this morning. Trying to do this on a weekly basis just to keep evangelism, mobilization in our minds. Morning. Thanks, Noah. <laughs> Good morning. Oh, Merry Christmas, guys. Tis the season, man. Game on. It's past Thanksgiving, so now we can say it. Let's be real. Okay? No, no, no. No, there's none of that before Thanksgiving. Um, Jeff Woodkey. Everybody remember Jeff. Okay. There is a picture of Jeff on the prayer map in the lobby area. So if you have your phone today, take a picture of Jeff. Have it on your phone. Remember to pray for him. Super cool. There was just a documentary released on Hulu that has Jeff and Els and their story on it. It's 3212 Unredacted. And it's, it's actually a kind of a conspiracy theory type thing, but it's, it's intriguing. We haven't watched it yet. It is rated TV mature. Might be language, might be violence or something like that. It is about a military kind of cover-up on some missions that happened in North Africa. Um, but Jeff and Els are in it for a good 20 minutes. It's an hour and a half documentary, so... I'm not going to recommend you watch it. I have not watched it, but just know 3212 Unredacted is on Hulu. Go to IMDb and kind of read through, like, the parental notes on it and see why it's rated that before you actually watch it. But they're in it. So let's keep praying for Jeff and his family because a lot of attention is being given to Jeff right now. So praise the Lord that kind of there's some pressure from just social media outlets on governments to kind of say, hey, like, this needs to be a focus. So pray for Jeff. Pray for L's, pray for their family. Um, the prayer point this week is pretty cool. Um, not, well, uh, it's, it's not cool, but it's cool that we have a connection to pray for them. Uh, Nagaland in India. Does anybody know where that is? Cool. So you know how India is shaped and there's that random little piece off? There's that, like, that land bridge and Bangladesh is there and then there's this like, random piece kind of off to the side of India. That's where Nagaland is. Nagaland has stuff like this. So this is a Naga knife. And what this used to be used for is headhunting in Nagaland. They were known as a headhunting tribe. Uh, this was given to us as a gift from the church in Nagaland. Um, that headhunting tribe became largely Christian. The Lord used missionary workers to bring the gospel into them, and the Lord really did an amazing work at establishing a church in Nagaland. Unfortunately, the Indian military... Uh, shot and killed 13 Naga tribal people because they thought they were guerrilla fighters. Uh, come to find out, they were not. I don't know a lot of the ins and outs, the information, but we do know that um, there's some conflict between the military and the tribe. And so I want, what, I, what I'd like our prayer to be this morning and through the week is that the Naga church, and use this as a reminder. I'm going to hang this up on the map as well if you want to take a picture of it. Um, the, the pastor in Nagaland that we were connected to, he said, we used to use this for headhunting, but now we use it for Jesus. <laughs> and then he kind of laughed and said, I don't know what we use it for Jesus yet for, but we use it for <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and he was a weird guy, like a weird sense of humor. So just remember the Naga people and that this conflict would be an opportunity for the gospel to come. How many of you guys remember that there was kind of a conflict during this guy's Jesus' time on earth? A little bit between the Romans, I think it was, right? Conflict is a good opportunity 
for his kingdom to come. There's just an openness. So let's pray that this conflict would be an opportunity for God's kingdom to come through the Naga church. Okay, and also I'm going to pray for Jeff as well, just a quick thing to open. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for our brother in chains, Jeff Woodkey. God, bless him today, God. That's what we pray. Bless him. Be with him. Encourage him, God. I pray that there would be a little thing today, whether it be a, a bird that lands near a window, whether it be uh, a testimony of, of, uh, of one of the prison guards that says something to Jeff. Encourage him, God. Lift him up today, Father, as we stand with Jeff. And as all this attention happens, I pray that he would be set free in Jesus' name. And Lord, we pray for Nagalands, God, that region that has a strong church but still is predominantly Hindu. God, we pray that the Naga people in the church would stand up during this conflict and preach the gospel openly with words that they would be bold and go forth and preach the gospel to their fellow tribesmen, as well as other tribes that are visiting in the area or live close by. God, I pray that revival would break out across Nagaland and surrounding states and that your kingdom would come, that your will, that every tribe, tongue, and nation would hear the gospel and bend the knee would happen right there in Northeast India. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, you can open your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. Hebrews chapter 2. Um, first, I want to agree with Andrew and say welcome to the Advent season. Um, anybody know what Advent means? Yeah, very good. <laughs> I learned from my Sunday school teacher, which is my wife, last week or last year, that uh, she taught Advent to her class, and she said Advent is an abbreviation of two words. Ad is advertisement of an event. I thought that sticks. So it's positive news, is what it is. The Christmas season brings really positive news that God is loving and merciful toward mankind and how we need to hear good news today, right? Um, this season, uh, sometimes what we'll do is we'll just preach series of messages that related to the incarnation of Christ. I think this year I feel the Lord is leading us just to stay right here in Hebrews. Uh, it's very appropriate, actually. There's parts of Hebrews that prophesy or relate to the prophecy of the Lord's coming. So we'll keep it here this morning. Um, I want to also tell you that um, this is a letter to the Hebrews. And in case you didn't know, Hebrews means one from the other side. That's what the term, it's an ethnic term that was a first associated with Abraham back in Genesis 14, where he was called a Hebrew. And it means one from beyond. Uh, later in Joshua, it, the Lord speaking, he says, I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river, the Euphrates. And so Hebrews are people from the other side. And I think that is really cool because it's really what the church is. We are now born again of God's spirit, and we represent, we come from the other side, if you will. We have the other side being heaven and God's glory. So there's a great opportunity for witness from these Hebrew people to our hearts today. 
The theme of Hebrews, as we've learned, is the majesty and the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's the majesty, the greatness of Jesus, and his ministry, particularly his work, his uh, office as a high priest. Uh, so that's kind of how this little letter is structured. The first five or six chapters really talk a lot about his majesty, and then it morphs over into his ministry as a high priest, the mediator between God and man. The reason the author is writing to these people from the other side is uh, they have come to faith in Christ, but they are, uh, there's troubles in life. And it started actually back when the church began in Jerusalem. Uh, chapter 8 of Acts, it says there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. And at that point in time, the church was 99% Jewish, Hebrew. But as the persecution broke out, they, they headed for the hills and they scattered. And as Andrew reminded us, it was from that, really, that the gospel began to spread into the farther reaches of Israel and even up into Syria and other parts of the Middle East. So the reason the author is writing is because there were troubles. The people were troubled. Storms were brewing. They knew it. They could feel it in the air. It was in the daily news. They were being singled out for their faith. It was becoming dangerous to openly identify as a Christian. They were, as a result, just like you and me, they were anxious. They were frustrated. They were fearful. They were doubtful. They were disillusioned, angry the whole realm, the whole gamut of emotions that go through when you realize that because of a truth that has been embedded into your heart by the grace of God, that other people don't see it that way. And you're regarded as a problem. And that's where these people are. They're real people, just like you and me. They had jobs, they had taxes to pay, they had homes to care for, mouths to feed. They had the normal stresses of life that were being challenged just because they were Christians. And because of that, they were becoming unsteady, unstable. And so the writer, who obviously knows these people, and they know him or her, we think it's him, uh, is writing to keep them anchored in the faith. And that is the title of today's message, really, to stay anchored, <laughs> to not drift away from what we know, for what we believe to be true, what we know to be true through experience and by light that has come into our heads and our hearts by God's love. So the author is writing to anchor their souls in Jesus. He opens his letter with um, a defense, really, of the glory, the majesty of Jesus in relation to angels. And that's a little odd to us. It's like, really? <laughs> Why are you getting all caught up in angel worship? Um, and I think 
maybe one of the simplest answers is what comes to us in the text in Hebrews chapter 2, where in verse 2, if you just look at it briefly with me, and I'm going to read through this text a little bit, verses 1 through 4. That's our text this morning. But he says in verse 2, for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast. And what the writer is saying is that when God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai back in Exodus, we didn't know that when we read that account, but we learn now and from other verses the angels were involved. They were actually mediating between God and Moses, and they apparently met with Moses and delivered these written words to him. It tells us in uh, Acts 7, this is Stephen talking to the religious leadership of Israel, the Jews, the high priests, and the, and the Pharisees. He, and he says to them, you receive the law as delivered by angels. Now, nobody's contending with that statement. It seems to be just common knowledge that angels were involved in the giving of the law. All right? Uh, Paul would say in Galatians 3, the law was put in place through angels. So this is perhaps one of the reasons that they were getting this, uh, so much attention, giving so much attention to the angels. Now, angels are amazing creatures, is a quick reminder from last week. They, we talked a little bit about angels, and they are indeed uh, superior to human in their capacity. We know that from Hebrews, that Jesus became lower than an angel when he took on human, human flesh and, and became man. So in capacity, their capacity is much greater. They're superior to us in abilities, in knowledge, in strength, uh, like infinitely superior to us. We're weak and limited, and they're not. But Jesus is infinitely greater than them. He's their creator, and they actually exist to serve him. A couple of verses that came to my mind just from reading for various reasons. Um, Revelation 18, just to show you the impressiveness of angel, angels. Revelation 18, and this is a time yet future when the end of the world is coming. John said, I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was bright with his glory. It's like, oh my gosh. The whole world's going to light up when this particular angel comes down to bring destruction to a city and a system called Babylon. Later on in Revelation, John says, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. And the angel said, don't do that. Worship God. Okay? And I find that fascinating because that's Revelation 22. John just had been taken up into glory in Revelation 4, and he saw the throne, and he saw God on the throne, and he saw the Lamb and all the angels worshiping him. And yet, even after all of that, we come to the end of Revelation, and he's before this angel who's given him all this information, and he falls down and he worships. That person, that creature was so impressive that John was that, responded that way. Happened to Daniel in Daniel chapter 8. It says in verse 17, when Gabriel came near, I was afraid and fell before his face. So touched, visited by an angel was an impressive thing. They're big, they're cool, they're influenced, they're powerful, all that. They're, they're small in comparison to Jesus. They're, they're finite in comparison to Jesus who's infinite in every way. 
And so the, the writer establishes with seven verses, seven different quotations from the Old Testament in chapter one, he firmly establishes the superiority, the majesty of Jesus in relation to angels. There's like no question. And he uses their scriptures to prove that. He shows that Jesus is a descendant of David, that he's a king. He shows Jesus as king multiple times in those verses. He reveals him as creator, and he tells us that he sat upon, well, verse 13 of chapter 1, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then he argues on, for the Lord's, on the Lord's behalf. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? So angels are God's ministers. They come with great power, and I'm thankful they're on our side. Praise the Lord. Now there is, of course, a dark side. And they, and they do battle against each other. <laughs> right? And we're to equip ourselves because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And that's a reference to the demonic entities. The, those angels who apparently have a will because they willfully moved away from God and became dark. Uh, there's no redemption for angels. The devil and his uh, demons uh, are, will exist in eternity in a lake of fire that was prepared for them. Um, so, praise the Lord. Angels mediated to Moses the old covenant. Um, I think what I'll do is I'll read verses 1 through 4 and dissect it a little bit with you, and then uh, we need to talk about the Old Covenant. Because Hebrews, more than any other book of the New Testament, talks about the New Covenant in relation to the Old Covenant. So it's imperative that we refresh our minds, what is a covenant, and what particularly was the Old Covenant, and what's the New Covenant all about? So We'll conclude with uh, an exhortation that we receive from the writer not to drift or neglect, and then we'll take communion together. So let's look at it here in chapter 2 of Hebrews. Therefore, it's always a great word. It means we're going to start to apply what we've just read. And what we just read is that Jesus is the greatest, that he has come to bring salvation, and angels are used by God to encourage us in our salvation, all right? Is what it said in the end of verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? You know, by the way, I would just say that if you took out chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, you could go seamlessly to verse 5 of chapter 2. You finish 114, you could go right to verse 5. My New King James says, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels. And I see the connection between 114 and 2.5 because those who will inherit salvation, I believe, is a reference not so much to those who will become Christians in the future, but he's talking about those who are Christians who will inherit God's kingdom ultimately will be glorified, will be taken up into his presence. And so shall we ever be with the Lord within heaven, okay? So he's talking, he always, the, the writer of Hebrews 
is, is stressing the majesty and ministry, and he's constantly repeating himself, saying, it's faith and hope. It's faith and hope. We've got this glorious hope set before us. Yes, I know times are hard. Yes, I know it's challenging you. It's challenging me, and I'm just being honest with you. It's challenging me what I'm reading in today's world. It's challenging me because it's, it, I'm feeling a bit of a pressure to go, you know, I can see it coming. I can feel it. I can hear it in the news. It's like to identify openly as a Christian may not be as acceptable in our American world as it was years ago. It might be a little bit more difficult. And so I think it's a very timely book. And the author is beautifully just keeps reminding them, you have a future hope. You will inherit salvation. This is hard down here, but it's not going to be up there. And so we go right to verse 5. He says, for he has not put the world to come. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about when Jesus comes again. The world to come, the new heaven, the new earth. He's going to set it up, his kingdom, eternally. And so that's the joy. But in between that, he gives these four verses that are really interesting. Application, exhortation. There's warning and there's encouragement. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the words spoken through angels proved steadfast, pause for a moment. He's referring to the old covenant. We've already made that point, right? He's referring to that old covenant. Now, in fairness, these are Hebrews. You know, and I would say they actually stand in a unique place because God called and chose this people group unto himself, and then he gave them a covenant. And for thousands of years, they lived in this covenant that came from God. And then Jesus comes on the scene and says, guess what? I'm changing the rules. I'm going to make it easier for you. No longer are you going to be required to go to the temple and put your hands on an innocent animal to transfer your guilt, and then it'll, be, it'll die in your place. Guess what? I'm going to do that all for you. And the only thing you need to do is not put your hands on me. Well, I guess symbolically, put your whole soul on me. Trust me with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind that I have accomplished that for you. You don't need to go to the temple anymore. It's a new covenant. Now, after thousands of years of that embedded in them and taught to their children and taught to their children and on and on for years, and it came from God. We are God's chosen. This is his unique system. And it came from angels. It's an old covenant. So I say all that to say that, you know, for these Hebrew people standing here in, this, in their day, or even in Jerusalem for that matter, if I go back to Acts where the church began, these were Jewish people who said, we believe in Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of everything the temple represents, the sacrifices, even the furnishings. There was no confusion in their mind when Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. The only light in the temple was the menorah in the holy place. 
There's no confusion in their mind when Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. The only bread in the holy place was the table of showbread. He's like, that's a shadow. I'm the shadow caster. That was all pointing toward the Messiah. And now I'm here. And there's a separation in that great curtain between the mercy seat and, and, and the priest. And he's like, I'm, taking the, I'm going to tear that veil through my own offering. I'm the priest and the sacrifice, perfect in every way, on both accounts. So these people stood in a unique place to preach to me and to preach to you. You know what? It's true. Even after thousands of years of this system, of going to this tabernacle, observing all the festivals and all that stuff, we now believe in Jesus Christ. And we've, we've put that behind us, and we're, we've entered into church, which is called out ones, those who come from the other side, as a result of the one who's come from the other side, Jew and Gentile. All right, that was a little rabbit trail. Verse 2, for if, we, if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. Now, the writer knows that they know this. And it would seem that perhaps they had been in Israel, in Jerusalem, or somewhere in Israel, when they heard the Lord start to preach the gospel, right? You know that. After he came out of the wilderness, 40 days of temptation, he comes out and he says, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. He sounds just like John the Baptist, but he, that's what he said. He went into his synagogue back in his hometown. He stood up, he read from Isaiah, and he said, today this word is fulfilled in your ears. I've come to open the blind eyes, to set the captives free, to heal, to preach the gospel to the poor. And he's like, today it's fulfilled. The Lord began to preach. There's a new kingdom. There's a new way to relate to God apart from the temple. They heard that. It began to be spoken by the Lord, not by an angel, the one who is superior in every way. That was cool what happened on Sinai, but now the man, oh, I say that respectfully, but I think you know what I mean. <laughs> now he himself has come, and he's establishing a covenant. It's greater. That's why it's a greater salvation. It's established by the Lord, and it brings eternal life. And he says, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him, Seems to refer to the apostles, right? Peter, Acts 2, and on it goes through the book of Acts. Verse 4, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. By the way, do you see the Trinity there? The Lord, God, and the Holy Spirit. They're all actively working through that church, through the preaching of the gospel that was bringing Hebrews into the faith, Christianity. God used miracles. It's a beautiful thing. And why? Because it validated the truth. I mean, up stands, stands up this fisherman from Galilee, 
who speaks with an accent. It was his dialect gave it away. We know the story about Peter. And yet he stood up and he starts preaching the gospel. Guess what? Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead. That tomb just outside of town that he was put in 40 days ago, he's not there anymore, 50 days ago. He's not there. There is no body. He went back to heaven. And then he started giving scriptures to back it all up to say, see, it was prophesied. Jesus fulfilled it. Many people repented, came to faith. The church was born. And then to validate the word, God started doing miracles. I mean, this is like who qualified Peter for that? That dude had a minimal education. You know who qualified him? The Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit who's in you and me. And, he's, and the Holy Spirit, they were just completely surrendered. And God's like, dude, I can do anything I want through Peter because I can trust the man. He's been refined a number of ways. And he's seeking to glorify me. So I'm going to demonstrate that what he's saying is true. Boom, stand up and walk. Holy cow, the dude was born lame. 40 years, Acts 3. Everybody's like, how'd you do that? He goes, what are you looking at me for? I didn't do it. The Holy Spirit did it. It's Jesus. He's alive. Ah, oh, it's beautiful. You know, by the way, when the Old Testament started... Back in the book of Exodus, God did signs and wonders, didn't he? Moses walks into town with a stick in his hand. Just a simple shepherd out from the Sinai Peninsula. And he comes walking in and miracle after miracle, let my people go. I don't, what are you talking about? Who are you anyway? God sent me, Pharaoh. Let my people go. And I'm telling you, God is telling you, let the people go. Well, do you know who you're talking to? I am Pharaoh. I'm the mightiest man on earth. Oh, really? Touches the water, everything turns to blood. All the fresh water in all of Egypt. Gross. Frogs. Unbelievable plague of frogs. I'm not a frog fan. Some of you guys don't mind handling reptiles. Not me. I'm not into it. But frogs came and they got into their kitchens, in their oven, they opened their cupboards. Frogs, they're in their glasses, they're in their clothes, they're in their everywhere. Frogs. Because they worship frogs. They worship flies and lice and all kinds of things and cattle. And the sun got, God turned it all black. He goes, well, I'll show you something. Put the light out for three days. No light. Let my people go, Pharaoh. You see, those aren't my words. Those are God's words, and he's showing you with those signs and wonders. These people had experienced all of that, and they were drifting away. All right, we'll talk about that in a minute, but it's important that we understand, to understand Hebrews, as we go through this, it's going to be important that we establish covenant. What is covenant? What's the old covenant specifically? So I just want to take a few minutes to go through that with you. Um, so let me just say this. First of all, a covenant is not a contract, okay? There is a difference between a covenant and a contract, a very important difference. A contract is a business transaction, all right? It's an agreement for goods or services, it doesn't involve the whole person on either side. It's just like, 
I just need you to come and do something and I'll pay you for that, right? Uh, it's impersonal. It's not necessarily relational. Um, a contract has an end date. When the work is completed, you're paid, bye-bye. Maybe I'll see you again if I have a need. That's a contract, all right? To illustrate that, just a little bit for you, uh, we have some water issues. Up behind our property here is a pond, and it's wetland, and that water is just coming down this way. It's pooling up against the back of our building, and it's never a good thing to have water against your foundation. So I've been getting estimates from various excavators who have been in over the last couple of weeks. We're going to pray about it as the Lord leads us, and if we get the green light from God, we'll sign a contract with an excavator, and they'll come in and they'll do their stuff to redirect water over to the swamp, which we own right over here behind me, and uh, hopefully keep our property in good shape. That's a contract. That's not a covenant, okay? So a contract has an end. It's an agreement uh, that doesn't involve the whole person, and it's not necessarily relational. A covenant is relational. It's God, particularly for our conversation, desiring a permanent relationship with his people. Bible covenants are between, oftentimes between God and people. There are some other covenants between people. Uh, David and Jonathan famously made a covenant to each other, right? Not a contract, but a covenant. It was very personal. It had no end date, all right? Bible covenants uh, are the same. They, there are conditions on our side, usually for maintaining the relationship, which makes perfect sense because we have a holy, perfect, beautiful God who is in a relation, he's desiring a relationship with sinful man. He's like, well, in order to keep this relationship good and healthy, there are some conditions on your side. Hence, God invented the tabernacle and the whole system of sacrificing and washing of water and burning stuff and lights and bread and all that was for and highlighted especially by the one great day of atonement where the high priest on that one day would go in behind the veil and make an offering for all the people for that year okay so bible covenants just repeat myself a little bit are between god and people there's conditions on our side for maintaining the relationship. Uh, oftentimes in Bible uh, covenants, there are promises of blessing for obedience. All right? These are kind of the essentials to biblical covenants. Between God and people, there's promised blessing, and then oftentimes there's a sign to indicate that there was a covenant made, just a sign. Uh, and again, just to remind you, a covenant has no end date, right? Because God's looking for an eternal relationship with people. It's not a contract. You do good for me, then I'll give you a little goodness in your life, and that'll be good. And then when that's done, go do whatever you want. No, he's like, I want to be with you forever. So a couple of quick examples of some Bible covenants just to remind you, Noah, right? After the flood, God came to Noah. He said, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring. Relational. And that covenant um, with every living creature that is with you never again has no end, 
shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Promised blessing. Okay? Relational, no end, promised blessing. And then he gave him a sign. What's the sign of the covenant with Noah? Rainbow. Good for you. Right? So every time you see a rainbow, it's like, oh, cool. God's never going to do that again until the end of time. <laughs> until the end of time. <laughs> right? Uh, God made a covenant with Abraham, very famously. Right? Um, just read parts of that. Genesis 17 kind of says it well. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. It's relational. Throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant has no end. To be God to you and to your offspring. <laughs> and I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. Who owns the land in Israel? God does. He gave it to the Hebrews. Forever. Forever. They have a right to the land that they're in today. God gave it to them. Do they know that? I'm not sure. <laughs> But we know that. Anyway, God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you. There's the requirement on your side of this relationship. Uh, Throughout your generations, promise blessing, you shall be circumcised in the circumcision uh, in your flesh, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. Okay? So God promised. That's a beautiful covenant that God made with Abraham. The covenant that the writer of Hebrews talks about is the covenant that God made through Moses. That's the old covenant, right? So there are other ones. God made a covenant with David that from his genealogy would come the Messiah. That was a covenant God made with David. But the one that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is the covenant made with Moses, which involved a law, had a whole bunch of stipulations and requirements that God put upon the people to maintain the relationship. So in Exodus uh, 19, God said, and I love to read this, um, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Now, this is after they've come out of slavery. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. Now, hear this. Now, hear this. I feel like a town crier. Now hear this. (laughs) I guess that's what a preacher is. He's a town crier. Now hear this. Because I want this to get embedded in your hearts. All the covenants of the Old Testament, they came by God's grace. He initiated them. He initiated them. He wants a relationship with people. And don't think that they're loveless. They are not, absolutely not. The covenants that God made with Abraham and then ultimately with his nation now that descended from Abraham is based on God's love and his grace. He's told his people in Deuteronomy, the Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number, for you were the least of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you. God makes covenant with us because he loves us and because he's gracious and he wants a personal, lifelong relationship with us. I hope this is clear to you. I'm talking Old Testament here. Like, this is really cool and meaningful and relational. So God, they arrive to Mount Sinai and the the thing basically explodes in front of everybody. It's smoke and it's loud and craziness going on. 
And Moses goes up and God said, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Now hear this, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself because I love you. And I didn't put my love upon you because you were so attracting. It's just because I love you. Sometimes it's hard to receive love, isn't it? Sometimes it's hard to receive God's love because we know who we are. Or we don't, we misunderstand who he is. Covenants make that clearer. I brought you to myself. That's why you're saved, Christian. God's called you to bring you to himself. Because he knows that that's where you're going to find all the grace you need for daily living. God would go on to say to Moses, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people promised blessing for obedience. What's the sign of the old covenant? Aha! He actually told them, it's the Sabbath. Exodus 31. You shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout the generations has no end. The sign of the old covenant was keeping the Sabbath. Now, maybe that informs you when you read the old, your New Testament and Jesus comes on the scene and starts doing things that the chief priests and Pharisees says, you're breaking the Sabbath. You cannot possibly be from God. John 9, he heals the blind guy because he spit on the ground, used his spit to take dust and turn it into mud, put it on the guy's eyes. And they're like, oh, spitting on the ground in the dust? That's work. You can't work on the Sabbath. You're not from God. That's the sign of the old covenant. Now, the way that God established the means that God gave the Hebrew people for maintaining the relationship was the tabernacle and ultimately a temple, which I've already talked to you about. Which Everything about the tabernacle. So hopefully that will... Um, give you greater interest when you read particularly Exodus 25 to the end of that book. And you get all these minute details of size and the materials that were used. Some were wood, some were precious metals, some were of different skins or cloth. I believe, personally, that every part of that is a foreshadowing of something about Jesus. Because Jesus walked into the temple in John 2 and he cleansed it, and they said, who do you think you are? And he said, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it up in three days. I am the temple. I am God. How you doing? <laughs> now, here's the thing. The new covenant. The new covenant gave what the old co covenant demanded. All right? The new covenant, established by Jesus, gave what the old covenant demanded, but could never supply. You see, for the people to maintain the relationship with God on our side of this covenant, they needed to constantly confess their sin. They had to live right. 
but they weren't. They were unright, unrighteous. The new covenant gives righteousness. That's what the Old Testament, Old Covenant demanded. It's all based on God's grace and love. He just simply fulfilled everything that was pointing toward Jesus with all the Old Covenant temple. The Old Covenant, again, it's the one made with Moses. Sometimes it's simply referred to as the law. The New Covenant did what the Old Covenant could never do. It could never remove sin. That is, its power and control over us. It could never do that. It could never cleanse the conscience. Oh, what a joyous moment when your conscience is clear. And I just say to you, church, if you've done some stuff or said some things that you shouldn't have done, get your conscience clear by simply going out and talking to God in gut-level, raw, unadulterated honesty. And I'll tell you many times that has been such a freeing experience. I'm just sharing a little bit personally, but for me, where I live, I've got plenty of places where I can walk outdoors, wooded, whatever. I look around, there's nobody around. I just start talking out loud because I don't want to be considered like, is this guy okay? Uh, sometimes I don't always see people and then they go like, you okay? <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. I'm just doing business with God. Get it out. And then that clear conscience, a fresh sense of his presence, his acceptance and forgiveness. Old Testament could never do that. They'd sacrifice an animal. On the way home, they'd go to sin again. It was like, well, what am I supposed to do now? I can't get... Well, wait for the Day of Atonement. It'll be one final sweep, and then you can start like a New Year's resolution, which never lasts the day. New Covenant provides this freely through faith and gives us hope of eternal life because Jesus is risen from the dead. He is the center of our focus and attention. Really, the new covenant was established on an agreement between the Father and the Son. You want me to go do that? Okay, I'll go do that. And I'll do that on behalf of the people. I'll mediate for the sinful world. And so he raised himself up and finally he said, it's finished, the debt is paid. And so the covenant that we enter into is really one between the Trinity. It's like immovable, unshakable. It's eternal, unchangeable. And we just believe that by faith. And God says, now the blessing of this covenant that I'm making, you get eternal life. You get righteousness. What's the sign of the new covenant? Head scratcher. <laughs> well, you might say baptism. That certainly is symbolic, but it's only that. It's symbolic of something that's real, that's happened inside. The sign of a new covenant, the sign of a person who is born again of the Spirit, self-loathing and Christ-loving. Self-loathing. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. I try to do right, and I never can do right. Paul would say so honestly in Romans 7. Thanks be to God, through my Lord Jesus Christ, there is now no condemnation. And it's, it's so liberating. I'm sensing the liberation coming through this truth to your ears right now. That Paul's like, wait a minute, I'm a knucklehead. 
I keep screwing up. And you're telling me that based on what Jesus accomplished for me, you're not going to be done with me? No. No. It's like, you mean, I sure I don't have to, like, give something or volunteer or, you know, buy $10 million worth of gift cards. No. You don't need to do any of that. I've done it for you. Justified by sinner. A sinner gets justified. So the sign is really a changed life. That's really the sign of the New Testament. It's a transformed life. And then we have baptism to just make a statement. Praise the Lord. <laughs> so to get my notes in order. Back to my text, application. Where are you today, friends? These people had all that. They'd come out of the old covenant. And they, as a sign of transformation of new life, they stopped they knew, oh, well, we could do that. It's okay, we could do that thing at the temple. But we see the fulfillment of it now in the person of Jesus. So it's optional. We can do it because we recognize how great he is. And now I see the deeper meaning in all these, even the, the materials that we're standing in here in the temple. Or I could not do it. Didn't Jesus say that to the woman at the well? Woman? <laughs> the day's coming... You don't need to go to a place. You will worship God from your heart wherever you are. She goes, you know, I think you're the Messiah. He goes, I am. Hmm. So they're drifting. I think in context, drifting means they lost sight of the glory of Christ. It's really just simply what it means. The author is using some kind of nautical term. Right? Hence, anchored, stay anchored. Right? He, he's using language that talks about some vessel sitting on water. Maybe there's a current of some kind or a tide. And as long as that vessel, you and I as believers, keep our faith and our attention in the glory and the finished work of Jesus, then we stay put. But they're drifting. Um, C.S. Lewis wisely stated, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? So in this case, brothers and sisters, in this case, these people were not looking to the beauty and relating to Jesus personally as closely as they had begun. And in this case, they started kind of looking back to go, remember the old days? That was really cool. Like Calvary Chapel started in the Jesus movement in the late 60s, early 70s. 
And as I started going to conferences, uh, became a Christian, got involved in leadership, started going to leadership conferences, and it did occur to me over time that there was a lot of remembering back the way it was. And I'm like, nah, be careful. Keep looking ahead. Let me give you an illustration. It's just a stupid one from my personal life, but that is me mowing the lawn, okay? <laughs> I probably told you this one before, but I have one part of my lawn that starts out at Hanshaw Road, goes all the way to the back property where the Huttons live, Ben and Hannah Hutton. We share a backyard. Right? It's about 80 steps or so. It's not much, but here's the deal. Me, because I'm a proud man, and there are some of you guys who mow lawn, who drive by my house, and I'm like, I want to make sure that you see a straight line. <laughs> well, it means something to me. Maybe it doesn't mean anything to you. But here's what I've learned. You can get a really straight line. How do you do that? Before I take one step, I fix a point. It's usually on Ben's windowsill. And it's just a little, he's got a little point right there in this windowsill, in his basement window. And as long as I keep my eye fixed on that point, I get to the other end, and I can turn around, and it's a perfectly straight line, give or take. But I'll tell you, I've done that so many times, it's not easy, and it never gets easier, because I have this constant thing of, I don't think this is going to work. And so my temptation is so strong to turn around and look and see how it's going while I'm going. And as soon as I do that, I get off. <laughs> don't look back, or don't look down. And it's fascinating to me, it's just like, this even gets hard just to keep my attention fixed on that one point. I start drifting over here, or over there. That's what the Lord's, that's what the writer's saying. Stay anchored. You know what you believe. And keep yourself in God's love. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Stay, stay close to the one who's established his covenant with you, with promised blessing and hope of eternal life. As hard as it is, and as challenging as it may feel to identify as a Christian, because it gets so politicized now. And, and, and I abhor that. Oh, you're a Christian. Well, then we know everything about you. You are anti-abortion. You are pro-gun. You are Republican, conservative. You are pro-Trump. You are blah, blah, blah. It's sickening. I'm none of those things. I'm a Christian. That's what I am primarily. That's my identity that God has given me. That's why we need to share the faith so the people go, oh, so you're not all those things? Yeah, maybe I agree with some of the platforms here and there, but you know what? I'm a sinner saved by grace. God wants to make a covenant with you. So the two things that the writer says is that he's drifting, and then he said, how shall we escape if we neglect Neglecting, drifting and neglecting. What's neglecting? Well, you know what that is. Neglecting is, I know what to do, but I don't do it. I, I have knowledge of what is right or what I should say or do, but I ignore it. I get careless and I don't do it. Neglecting. Another illustration. I'm just like burying my soul with you this morning. <laughs> Another illustration back in the men's room got a leaky plumbing. 
It's like, okay, I've known that. I've neglected it. I know I should change the fixture, but I haven't changed the fixture. I got the water bill last week. It comes every three months. We consume 2,000 extra gallons. And it cost me 20 bucks more on my water bill because of my negligence. Now that's a stupid, simple illustration, but what if I neglect the great salvation? Then what? Do I shipwreck my faith? Do I run up on the rocks? The author identifying himself with these people, we, how shall we escape? I think he's saying that God loves you so much, he'll chasten you. You look at the old covenant, the people in the old covenant, and when they neglected and drifted and started worshiping other gods and idols, there was a assortment of chastisements that came their way. Sometimes very, very serious. And oftentimes as a result, okay, whew, wow, how do we get there? Yeah, let's come back to center. I think that's all the author's saying. He's like, do you really think having been exposed to the glory and that much light that if you start drifting away and get real carnal, really a lot of compromise going on in your life, do you think God's not going to deal with that? You have a greater, we, we have a greater responsibility than those people in the old covenant because of the divine presence who dwells inside of us, leading us into all truth. There's a greater access, and with that comes greater responsibility, brothers and sisters. I knew this would go late. I don't care. <laughs> Not this morning. Because as we prepare to take communion, I just want to show you one of the most beautiful scenes in all the Bible. And that is the Song of Solomon, which I have already thrown my eggs in that basket. I see that whole book as an allegory, as prophetic between the divine king and his bride, the church. Yes, it was Solomon. Yes, it was a Shulamite. Real people, real time, telling a story, a greater story. So go back there with me, if you would, to Song of Solomon. And I just want to show you, as a lead up into communion this morning, Song of Solomon chapter 3. I just want to show you the, uh, this beautiful woman, <laughs> this beautiful bride of the king. Uh, it, Song of Solomon chapter 3, she's actually not the bride yet. But the wedding day has been planned, and it's near to come. And... The way this beautiful story is laid out, the wedding actually happens at the end of chapter 4, okay? So at this point, they're not married. But look at her in verse 1. By night on my bed, I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will rise now, I said, and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who go about the city found me. I said, have you seen the one I love? Scarcely I had passed by them when I found the one I love. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. 
I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. What was the attention of this woman? It was singular and it was intentional. And she was in love with this one who was so glorious. And she, and there was, nothing was going to get her. She is seeking, asking, and finding with all of her heart, soul, strength, and mind. She can't even sleep. (laughs) First love. That's first love. They get married. Go to chapter 5. Verse 2. After the wedding, after the consummation of the marriage, verse 2. Look at the difference. I sleep, but my heart is awake, distracted. She's restless in a bad way. I sleep, but my heart is awake. You guys feel like that? Your heart really doesn't rest. And therefore, you're really not resting. I just tell you, I think the thing the Lord wants to do today is just to bring a quiet. Be still and know that I am God. Just to rest. She's not resting. And it tells us why. It is the voice of my beloved. He knocks. Notice he's not with her. And he says, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. You see, he doesn't slumber or sleep. He's out all through the night. He's endured the night. And he comes to her now. And she says, look at her, verse 3. I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? Really? What happened? <laughs> what happened? You went from, my God, I can't live without this man, to, ah, oh, I hear you, but, you know, it's going to take some effort. And <laughs> she's not actually doing anything wrong. She's just indifferent. How do we drift? Familiarity. Time. Busyness. Familiarity, oftentimes. You know that loved ones? When I say loved ones, I mean married ones, right? There was so much passion and excitement, and now here we are, 5, 10, 12, 40 years into the thing. Same old ugly Scott. (laughs) Poor Joni. (laughs) Right? You get distracted. Or he's just like, Look, how many times have you read the Gospels? Thursday night, Bible study, we're doing John. I don't know how many times I've taught through John. Numerous. Many, many times. Fresh. Because I'm in a different place in life. And and the truths are timeless. And the covenant is without an end. And so there's, there's fresh application and connection and discovery of Jesus. Truly, there is. She says, well, I don't know. I just don't feel like it. 
Look what he does, verse 4. And this will lead into communion. My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door. and My heart yearned for him. She came to the end of herself. And she says, I rose up to open for my beloved. And my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh, on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when I spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. And the watchmen who about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. Even her friends were like, what a waste of your time. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters, if you find my beloved, then you tell him I'm lovesick. Well, she finally finds him. But here's my point. Every little detail in this beautiful story. He put his hand through somehow lattice, whatever, and he put his hand on the handle of the, door, the doorknob. She gets up, finally, goes to the doorknob, and it's covered with myrrh. Mm, liquid myrrh. And what's your point, Pastor Scott? When they embalmed Jesus, they wrapped him in myrrh. This is telling us a bigger story. And he's reminding her of his sacrificial death for her sin. And that's what he's reminding us today. Those wise men came from the east. They gave gold, his divinity, frankincense, and myrrh, his priesthood, his death. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they brought 100 pounds worth of myrrh, and they wrapped his body up in clothes with myrrh, and they laid him in a tomb. This king... He put myrrh on the lock, and she grabbed it, and now it's on her, and she goes, oh, he loves me. I don't deserve it. I've been distracted and negligent, but he loves me. And that's what he's telling her. He's leading her back to first love. So Becky, Val, if you would come up. Uh, I've asked Beck to do something a little bit different this morning. And that is to, I would just like to have calm in the room. <laughs> I've asked her just to lay down some, some beautiful music, just interlude. And I'd like you all just to come up and to get your cup and to go back to your seat. While we just, there's no singing involved yet. And just let the, the grace of God examine you. Peter would say, examine yourself to see if you're still in the faith. Have I lost my moorings? Has there been compromised, unconfessed sin? Is Jesus my first love? <laughs> All right. One little piece of information. It's actually kind of cool. But I found out by accident how to open these little suckers. <laughs> if you take that tab and push it down and then pull it up, it actually breaks the tab. And then you can pull the foil away from and expose the juice. It's way easier. <laughs> okay, you haven't got to get your fingernail under there. So get the, 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 the clear thing away from the wafer. That's pretty easy. Push the tab down.
It'll snap. You pull it back up. Now it's free, and you can pull it right off. Okay? <laughs> Had to do that, just so you don't get frustrated. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, back, just go ahead and play. I'll uncover, and, and folks, just file up and, and go back to your seat and just spend time in prayer and confession and worship, whatever. And then we'll partake together at the end. I'll say a few more words. We'll, we'll share communion together. And then I'd like to sing a hymn just in closing when I survey the wondrous cross. Okay. Help yourselves. The Lord's inviting you to his table. It's an expression of his covenant.
thank you for indulging me, friends. I just really wanted to have a quiet time with the Lord. I just think that uh, in his presence is fullness of joy. <laughs> There's just uh, peace. And it's so good to be in the presence of one who is peaceful. And the fact that we can be with him in peace, not in fear, is all because of that liquid myrrh that he gave his life. And he said to the disciples, hey, you know, I've desired to eat this meal with you. It's been my one great passion because I love you. And he broke that bread and he said, this is my body. And he gave the cup and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. I'm going to actually forgive all your sin. I'm going to make you right with me. And then we'll have fellowship. <laughs> so let's take a, the, the wafer and the juice and make it available for ourselves by exposing it all and Thank you, Lord. There's no condemnation. It's a real thing. Thank you, Lord. I thank you that as you came to the disciples in the upper room, the first thing you said is peace. The conflict between God and man is now over for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he has given us so great a salvation, great enough that when we die, we will go into his presence, and that's grounded on the fact of the Lord's resurrection and ascension. And we have in our hands just symbols of what he did while he was here to establish that for us. So, Lord, we gladly take this in remembrance of you, that you would be center in our lives. The drifting, we'd get anchored. We'd be not neglectful, but seeking. Thank you, Lord. Let's partake together. I guess I should say that it is pretty late. If you need to go, that's understandable, but we will close with a final hymn. So let's stand and sing, and again, if you need to go, I apologize, but don't be uh, afraid to just do what you need to do.
God bless you this week. Keep yourselves in the love of God.